In this podcast, we take you with us on a journey about economics and investing. By being equipped with different perspectives, we strive to make better and more informed financial decisions. Welcome to Capital Convos. Universal Basic Income. We briefly mentioned it in our episode about minimum wages and I think it's time to, you know, do a deep dive into it because I don't think many people have heard of the concept of uh, universal basic income and it has been something that's been popping up, especially in the recent U.S. elections by one of the in the early stages, presidential candidate Andrew Yang, and it has been experimented with in a few countries in Europe, such as Finland, I think Germany as well, but also Iran and some other countries. So before we dive into all that, let's take a look at the concept as a whole so our listeners know what we're talking about actually. So what's the definition of a universal basic income or what does that concept encompass? Just like the minimum wage, there are different examples depending on where you're located. But the generally agreed upon definition is everyone, regardless of who you are, what your social position is, everyone gets a guaranteed minimal amount of income, usually to foresee yourself in your very basic survival needs. So if we're talking about survival needs, it's basically we talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, before in you know, it's the, the, the five levels, you know, survival, security, social proof, some self-esteem. I think I skipped one over, but uh, yeah, you guys can just, you know, Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We talked about it extensively in the previous episode, but that's the gist of it. And if you're talking about survival, it's basically to, you know, have food, shelter, and the basic needs to have a normal life, food, shelter, and drinking. Yes, did not die. The real basic elements. And the theory is, is that if those basic, basic needs are met, you won't have to stress about finding a job you hate to pay just to survive. You get at least some room to not die. And that way you can pursue whatever your dreams are with at least a little bit of stability in your life. So to paint the picture more clearly imagine you you know you live in a city big city you work basically every month you get say five hundred dollars from the government to cover your basic needs and it's basically up to you what you do alongside that to add more to your income and basically to grow your wealth in that way from what i've seen there are no regulations on what you have to spend it on you are completely free to do with it whatever you want you can do let's let's just say the obvious contra point which is you can just buy drugs and do whatever you want but obviously uh people aim that you buy food shelter and those basic needs so the big issue with you know the the people who counter this and uh, challenge this concept is usually where does this money come from? Because it's kind of like uh, you know a, a retirement fund, but you get it early. So who pays for this? Where does this money come? If you look at it at a macro scale, all governments are in debt. You could pay it through taxation or borrowing money. Those are two basic examples. And I'm not generally not really opposed to that because if it's kind of like an investment, 
if you invest now and you get a greater return on your investment in the future, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is it worth the investment? That's a big task to undertake if you ask me. So let's look at the example of Finland, for example. They tried it out in, uh, I think it's 2019, yeah. Small project, I think a few thousand employees. They were getting around $500 a, a month or euros, no strings attached. And fast forward two years later, they didn't really implement it. I think there's a lot of kinks to, you know, still work out. And the argument is also, is it only something that will be applicable to, you know, more developed regions, more developed countries like the, the Nordic, Scandinavian, European countries, or maybe Canada, for example, because they have that as a government, as a institution, that wealth that they could distribute to, you know, increase the happiness and, you know, alleviate some of the struggles of the citizens. Yeah, it's really good that you brought on that topic because in my observation, the concept of a universal basic income is best utilized when talking about very, very developed countries where the productivity is so high, which means that the labor force is so skilled that you don't really have a lot of unskilled labor, the typical low-wage McDonald's job and the typical just working as a cashier because everything is automated, which means that people at the lowest end of the social ladder, they really don't have any chance to climb up the food chain. So I would consider the possibility of a universal basic income to at least accommodate those people so they can find their path without having to worry about starvation. But if we're talking about developing countries, that is a whole different ballgame because the the government is way too inefficient in those places. They wouldn't even be able to define how much to get. They wouldn't even know how to distribute it because most people don't have bank accounts in those countries. So it's a really, really difficult thing to implement in those countries. Let's focus on the, the developed countries since that's the more likely area that it's applicable and then trickle down. So... I, I remember listening during Yang's campaign of 2019 that one of the arguments he brought on how to get the funding, how to get the funds to, you know, distribute to the citizens was one taxation, but not taxation on everybody, taxation on the big corporations like the Amazons, like the, the huge companies that actually pay minimum or almost no tax in the countries they operate in. So, he was talking about a mechanism to, you know, have these companies, corporates, in a way, subsidize the citizens as a way to pay back. What's your thought on that? I don't think it's a good thing to take your best performing companies, which are the biggest growing companies that have the most growth potential and that employ the most amount of people, and then you slap on taxes and regulations on those companies and make them less inefficient. Because what's going to happen, competition from other countries is going to take them over and you're going to be left holding the short end of the stick. I believe it would be a bit more efficient if you would just fund it through a flat tax that everyone pays a little bit. Or you do it through borrowing. The government issues some bond, you get some finances, and then you redistribute the wealth. 
or what I would say is even better, which is instead of all those government welfare programs, there are hundreds of them. Let's say food stamps, housing subsidies, corporate subsidies, subsidies for the billionaire class, because there's a lot of those as well. I'd say just get away with all of them and then you just have one universal basic income. So you have, let's just say you have, you have the normal tax rate. It's basically putting all the, you know, government subsidies, the thousands of them that they have over the years and all the policies under one umbrella. And then it's like equal for everybody, basically. Yes, exactly. That would also make it very transparent because don't forget all these subsidies and welfare programs, they are buried down in deep in legislation in fine print of all these documents you don't know unless you have a really really good lawyer so to simplify the tax policy and to just make it as efficient as possible everyone knows what they're going to get everyone knows what they're going to pay i think that's a much more efficient way and actually the people that are against the minimum wage usually the free market economists there's an economist called milton friedman which is probably one of the godfathers yeah. of free market economics. He was actually in favor of this as we described it, which is you get rid of all government subsidies and welfare programs and you just replace it with a universal basic income or what he would call it a negative income tax. All right. So another argument that is often mentioned is also, if you look at it from the receiver's perspective, everyone has the right to this universal basic income. That's why it's called universal, you know? equal rights to everybody. So we're talking, let's do, take for example, a thousand dollars. You who live, you know, you work the basic in your early twenties, middle class income, basically you get that thousand dollars. The guy on the street who's barely, you know, surviving gets a thousand dollars, but also the rich get that thousand dollars. Everybody has the right to it, but everybody's situation is different. And then the the case comes, how will they use it? Do the rich even need it? That's a very interesting point. And I think that's a very, very good critique of the universal basic income. But if you don't give it to everyone, then it isn't universal anymore. And then it, if it isn't to everyone, then it's just a regular welfare program. And where the rich people give their money and then it goes to the poor people. So I think for definitions purpose, if we're talking about the universal basic income, we can't consider events under which it would be restrictive, restricted only to poor people. We could argue if it's a good or bad idea, but then it obviously it wouldn't be universal basic income and we would be having a totally different conversation right now. All, all of these theories concept talk about, you know, a utopia scenario that everybody would, you know, benefit from it. But if, if you look at it from a human behavioral and, you know, more psychological perspective, the rich, they don't necessarily need it, but they, as you said, it's universal, so they have the right to it. And if you're a normal, you know, without nefarious intent individual, you'd probably say, okay, I, I get it. Or, you know, you donate it elsewhere because you don't necessarily need it or you don't even take it in. But that's just to prove to the point that everybody has the right to it. How they use it depends on them. And this gives more flexibility for creators in the middle class, for example. They don't have that survival mentality anymore. Like, I need to live, you know, struggle, get a job here and there. And they can actually 
develop their skills in that sense. And basically, you lift up the whole society from one layer of Maslow's hierarchy to another as a collective. And that's, you know, with, with people with good intent. And the assumption is that the majority of people would operate that way. I get that. I get that truly. But obviously, the utopian vision is a, is a bit of a difficult one because you can't legislate your way into prosperity. You can't just make some laws and just eliminate poverty. Otherwise, everyone would have done it before. The problem goes much deeper. The way to create prosperity is through productivity, growth, innovation, technology, and be becoming more efficient which is key, you need to become more efficient. And if you give people something for nothing, there's a very strong argument you can make that it would not incentivize people to become more efficient, it would actually do the opposite. It would make people more lazy, it would make people more dependent on the government instead of taking risk, taking their life into their own hands and doing something with themselves. We mentioned it, I think, earlier in the beginning, a uh, point there on automation. I think it goes hand in hand, automation and efficiency and this concept of universal basic income. Because the fear usually is everything gets automated, you know, the manufacturing line gets automated. You don't have that many workers in the assembly line anymore and everything's mechanized. You lose that part of the workforce, essentially. And to accommodate that, you basically have this income model for them to have them survive i think was the idea to alleviate that part of automation but my argument or counter argument to that is there's been innovations like this for centuries everything has been improved you eliminate a whole group of jobs but other jobs emerge and this is where basically you need to keep schooling and educating yourself to develop yourself into new forms of work I guess the counter argument there would be even if the assembly line jobs are fully automated, distribution jobs are fully automated, that workforce is eliminated. There is different types of technological jobs, maybe on a higher level, but this implies that society has evolved. If you play civilization, you, you know what you're talking about, the, the video game. So you're evolving society in that way. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really good point. And that is something that we've struggled with since the Industrial Revolution. Because the problem is you eliminate the lowest denominator job, the most of the unskilled labor, and then, of course, there are new jobs coming in. But those jobs are not a replacement for the jobs lost. Those are usually jobs for skilled labor. Because automation has brought... Indeed, factory workers have been replaced by machines and the jobs that those machines create are actually in programming, program math. And those are not the same jobs that the workers that got fired can do. So those people are getting the short end of the stick and they don't have no idea what to do, which means that the poorest of the poor people can't get any jobs, while the richest people that are able to be creative, to innovate, and to adjust to this new labor force dynamics, they are the ones getting much better and much richer. I'd like to raise in, I guess, a red flag on that part of, you know, you mentioned the lowest skilled labor, 
and definitely tech is usually programming but even in this high skilled let's call it high skilled for the sake of reference field there is also rapid automation in that as in programmings are being automated as well so you're increasing the gap there even from lower labor to high skilled labor wow i guess automation comes for everyone <laughs> i guess i hadn't considered that but something i i really do want to touch on which is that it isn't all negative even for the person that's lost their job because through automation you get much more efficiencies in everything which is which means that even someone who got laid off still gets to stay at home and order their stuff off of amazon and it gets shipped within two days or sometimes even within two hours like that is a benefit that you get from automation okay yes you lost your job you have to find a new one and it's going to be difficult to find a new one perhaps you're going to have to spend six months to learn a new skill get an apprenticeship and start from base level from zero again all right but there are perhaps a hundred other things that are beneficial to you because of that same automation and that's the way it's been done since the industrial revolution people have built upon the innovations made by the previous generations and us as a society we've become so much better for it to bring this into a more macro perspective we checked it out in a more individual the workers perspective your comment on you know these people getting laid off but they can still you know cause of all this automation order the stuff off of amazon all these automated process get delivered to their front door basically through an automated drone or whatever this is direct competition or even elimination of other types of jobs as in the local shop the local stores uh, mom and pop shop that just been there for the past few years and basically they can't even compete because the pricing and the efficiency of this whole assembly line distribution company is so much more efficient than them and they even lose their jobs yeah and, and to add to that some of these new companies that are very efficient they even have a policy that they don't care if they lose money for the first five years because they have a plan for the next 50 years so they will price their products much lower than anyone can possibly counter with just to make everyone else in that neighborhood go broke and file for bankruptcy just so they can have the biggest market share in let's say 10 years because those companies they have billions of dollars of investors and they can outlast everyone so not only are they very efficient they are very patient all right and my opinion on that is it sucks honestly it sucks but since we've grown up we've been the beneficiaries of all these strategies nothing here is new it's existed for more than 100 years and it brings society higher as a whole and you should know that when you are an entrepreneur when you have a small business nothing is guaranteed you, you should always be on the lookout if there's a competitor coming make sure you can manage and if you cannot manage make sure you have some secondary skills just in case it doesn't work out because when you start a business you assume all the risk and you also assume all the reward and that's something you should know before starting a business you aren't owed anything
I think that the comment even diverted from the main topic, uh, but a uh, good thing you brought it up because this extends to, you know, entrepreneurship, running a business, growing something and making something for yourself. And just to pluck one of our other shows, you know, social combos, we talk a lot of, about these things. So guys, check that out. There, there are several episodes where we talk about entrepreneurship, venture capital, and basically growing businesses at the whole and the marketing around that. So check out Social Compost on the website. Those episodes are live every Tuesday. But that's just to, you know, relate this to the macro. But coming back down to, you know, we, we're talking about universal basic income here. We've mentioned several, you know, pros and cons that people have against the concept and the models and several issues that may arise during its implementation or, you know, the use of but that was ma- mainly looked at from, you know, a developed country point of view. So to, to wrap this up, let's take a quick look at the more developing countries and even underdeveloped countries on why this would or would not work. And I want to bring up actually China into this context, even though they are, you know, one of the biggest economies in the world, rivaling, you know, the USA yeah, it's basically the second biggest. They have not the democratic capitalist model, basically communism. And they, they basically have a low standard, I, I'd, I'd call it, for everyone there to be kind of equal. So won't you argue that that's a form of universal basic income, while it might not be directly money in their pocket, but the government takes care of them? In theory, I think China has a huge inequality problem, which is because you have some parts of, let's not forget, China is humongous, all right? And some parts of China, which have adopted a more market-based approach and have focused on technology and innovation, those places are very rich. Like, look at Hong Kong, for example, all right? And then you compare Hong Kong to well, Hong Kong technically isn't a part of, so, but I, I know what you mean. We can talk about uh, Shenzhen, for example, or Macau. Let's compare the capital, for example, to what rural China. All right. There's a huge difference. Okay. And the government isn't as active there in re- redistributing wealth. So the economy in China is very capitalist, but the social structures are very communist. So they have, that's a, a bit of their hybrid approach. You can have an opinion on that, but I, I'm not sure how much redistribution is going around in China. Yeah, I won't call it redistribution of wealth. The majority is being taken care of at the minimum level. And I'd argue, as you said, there's a lot inequality there. I'd argue that the most or the largest part of the population is in the lowest two levels of Maslow's hierarchy. So if you, you know, correlate that distribution compared to the more Western side, it's more spread out and there it's more lower and higher. But they're taken care of in a universal way, in a sense. That is true. I hadn't considered that. So the government makes sure you can, add, everyone is equal in that those basic needs are met. And but they're stuck there. Yes, but they're stuck. <laughs> Hmm. I guess I guess that's one way of viewing a potential downside. Of course, it isn't exactly the same as a universal basic income, but the the same concepts apply. Yeah, the idea. Yes, exactly. Which is that if you 
make people dependent on the government, they tend to stay there. There's very little mobility to move upwards. And that's very interesting. Uh, is that what you meant, Diego? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's that limiting factor, and it and I, I just want to bring up that example because China is a is a unique you know you know unique position in political and economic position. But then let's look at that from a smaller country, you know, like Syria. Would it even work here in a developing country? That is true. In Suriname, we have a very poor economy at the moment. I understand, but even still. There are enough social structures in place, and with social structures, I mean, I don't mean government. I mean direct families and friends that you can at least get a plate to eat if you even have a part-time job. Right? You can at least not starve to death in Suriname if you have a part-time job. If you have a full-time job, that's better. Right? So you're not in the first part of Maslow's hierarchy. You're in the second part. Okay, so let's assume that Suriname is able to do it. Would it be a good idea if most people aren't starving to death? That's a very interesting question because after that we can get into whether or not it's a good idea. Could that be, you know, you not starving to death be attributed to the communal way of doing things? Because the West, you know, United States, Europe is very individualistic, as in. You know, kids get kicked out of the house at 18. You know, fend for yourself. Yeah. But we have a more like Eastern in that sense society, as in families come together, you li- you live together, you help one another. Yeah. What could that would that be attributed to that? What you were just mentioning on not starving to death. Yeah, that's definitely. I think you could view that as some form of universal basic income. It isn't the income per se, you don't get money from the government, but you have some safety structures in place to make sure that when you fall, you at least land on your feet. We can take that a little bit deeper and say, even if we have that, does it really solve the problem? We can look at examples of Canada and Finland, for example, how they implemented the universal basic income. And we can compare that to Suriname, where we have at least conceptually the same form, but it doesn't solve the same problem, all right? Which is that people need to become more productive. People need to become more efficient. And if you provide all that safety, it has a cost. And that cost is innovation. That's why the United States is so efficient. It's because you don't have that safety structure. You get kicked out at 18. The government doesn't really look after you that much. Here we do do that, and it's a very safe lifestyle, but it has a cost. As we mentioned, there's no utopia. Depending on the context, there's pros and cons to every approach. And I think what we try to do here at least, hopefully that came through clearly, is you know, highlight all these points of views and approaches depending on the situation. And we hope that this helped challenge our thoughts as well, but that you listeners at least, you know, got some insights on these concepts, on these approaches, and that you could formulate something for yourself on what could work for you. All right. Great. Good talking to you, Diego.